Hey, good evening. This evening I'd like to read to you an excerpt from the book Touching the Invisible by Norman Grubb. I'm going to focus on Chapter 8, How to Maintain Unity. No one can be long in the Christian organization without being brought face to face with the necessity that in a community of God's servants, the personal zeal and faith of its members must be accompanied by the ability to live together in harmony. The key to fellowship is seen to be the next most important acquirement to holy living and love for souls. It must be admitted that among Christian communities of every type, holding every varied emphasis of scriptural zeal, truth, knowledge uh, and knowledge far, far outrun the graces of dwelling together in unity, forbearing one another in love and thinking no evil. We ourselves were driven to this conviction some years back by our own failures, and what God has taught us on the subject, we have had ample opportunity of putting to the proof these past nine years in the rapid growth of our numbers from 40 to 220, and from our fields from 1 to 11. Here has been room enough for dissensions and divisions, nor have we been wholly free from them in individual instances, and in one case on a young field. But on the whole, we can only marvel at the heart-to-heart unity existing today between all fields and home bases, and between the workers on each field, which have made us only more sure that these principles of fellowship learned from God's word are true. What are they then? First, we must make clear Unity is not the first fundamental. Unity is the essential lubricant to the operation of the machine. Yet it is neither the machinery nor the motive power. First, therefore, we must be sure of our engine before we consider its lubrication. Therefore, when we speak here of unity, we do not mean a unity without doctrinal foundation, nor a unity which is made an end in itself, with any sort of compromise to attain it. We mean, the uniting of, we mean the uniting of a section of God's people based upon the common faith once delivered to the saints, and in our case with the common objective of worldwide evangelization. So now to tackle our problem upon under, uh, this understanding. We are a Christian organization, <coughs> excuse me, one in doctrine and one in general working methods. Within these limits, unity is essential, yet 75% of our problems and calamities center around our failure to unite. What are the causes of disunity? In the vast majority of cases, they are the effect that the actions or attitude of a fellow worker have on us. A coldness or neglect towards us is observed and felt. Some habit or mannerism jars us. Some apparently unspiritual behavior or method of work meets with our disapproval. Now there may well be real justification for this feeling. Our judgment may be true. There may be real cause for concern. But here lies the secret. Christ gave it. He said words to this effect. When you are tempted to criticize or resent, turn your attention to yourself and leave your brother alone. Recognize the beam of resentment and criticism in yourself. Let the Holy Spirit deal with that. Then you will be fitted to deal with your brother's moat. For either you will cease to notice it, and it will be swallowed up in your renewed vision 
of all there is of Christ in him, or you will recognize that your Lord, who tenderly removes your faults in his own way, is also his Lord, who will do the same for him without your interference. Or, if in the rare case you are led to speak, it will be more a word of confession of your resentment than rebuke for his failure. In other words, the first great secret of maintaining unity is, the moment I am inclined to criticize or resent my brother, I must recognize my spirit of criticism as a sin, which concerns me and not my brother's behavior. And I must keep on letting God deal with it till a spirit of appreciative love replaces it, by which I honor my brother instead of judging him, and rejoice in all of the image of Christ to be seen in him. This is the outworking of what we have often called the victory of Calvary. Even in problems of relationships, the way to life is through death, not only in ourselves, but, but others. For on such occasions as these, when we make it our occupation to see that we abide in Christ's death, the resurrection outcome is not merely the triumph of the spirit of love in our own hearts, but also the conquest of Christ in our brothers. We find ourselves empowered to claim the disappearance of the offending characteristic if it is truly an offending thing. With ease, as we have assurance that God is doing it, and in due course we see the triumph of this miracle-working way of the cross, this inheritance of the meek, for the offending thing disappears and is replaced by the graces of the Spirit without the strain and distress of painful conflicts bitterness of spirit, and often wrecked nerves and actual division. From another angle, we may say that the key to the maintenance of happy and easy relationships between co-workers is the same that unlocks the door to all our problems. Faith. But this time towards man. The immediate problem then arises. How can we trust fallible men or they us? We can love them, but how trust them? The solution to this problem is that we are to act towards our brethren as we do to ourselves. We do not trust ourselves, but we trust Christ in us. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. And as for ourselves apart from him, although recognizing our many faults and fallibilities, we are quick to side with God in his long-suffering of us, and to comfort ourselves with the knowledge that he judges by the honest motive rather than the poor production. Now let us go further and apply to the other members of the body that we have applied to ourselves. Recognize Christ in them. Count on Christ in them. In so far as there is another nature observable in them, show them the same tolerance and sympathy as we do to ourselves. Believe that Christ is working, Romans 6 and verse 2, out in them also, and that they are cooperating with him. Reckon on the earnestness and sincerity of their discipleship, as much as we desire them to reckon on ours. By doing so, we are effecting more than the maintenance of unity. By our faith, we are building up our brethren in Christ. For, as we have already seen, faith is creative, just as conversely by our mistrust, 
we help to pull down Christ's edifice in them. For the maintenance of unity, therefore, we have only to look in the same direction as for the solution of all other problems, not to the solving of a problem without us, in our brethren or circumstances, but within our own selves. There is an outlook on all men and things proceeding from an inward condition which radiates both inward and outward harmony. It is found in Paul's remarkable statement, To the pure, all things are pure. An inward attitude of purity which sees all the contrasting evil and good of life, not as a mixture, but as pure. Its effects are given us by the Lord Jesus, when he says that singleness of eye, purity of eye proceeding from purity of heart, results in fullness of inward light and therefore of peace and harmony, radiating out, of course, to all around. How can we have the single eye? this purity in the effect of all things upon us in a world of wickedness? The answer, as indicated, is to be found within. Science tells us that in ordinary things of life, from the multitude of sights and sounds and contacts conveyed to us through our senses, our minds only actually select and retain a fragment of all the vibrations which pour upon us, and that fragment accords with our mental outlook. What we hear and feel is largely what we are within. Thus, in seeing and describing a tree, for instance, the mind of a botanist will select and accept visible, tangible or oral impulses which conform to his outlook, points which concern the genealogy and life of the tree. An artist, on the other hand, will be enraptured with points which concern its form and colouring, the woodsman with its value for the sawmill, and so on. The condition of the mind is seen to control the choice of information conveyed through the senses and to give a description and pass a judgment accordingly. Follow out this line of thought in the things of the Spirit and it will be seen to illuminate those sayings of Christ and Paul. The Christ-filled man will recognize the hidden perfections and purposes of the Creator and Redeemer working in and through all things, evil and good, and will fix his pure eye on that. The one who originally made all things good is still at work in all to consummate his final stated purpose, to gather together in one all things in Christ, and upon this single eye is fixed. On this basis, so far as his brethren is concerned, he will recognize and respond to all that is Christ-like in them from among the multitude of information conveyed to him concerning them through his senses. There are devilish things in all abundance and reality, but the pure heart and eyes sees the pure things, as it is said of God himself, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil. The two alternatives always present themselves to us. We can see at a glance the human or carnal in our brethren, or we can see the outlines of Christ. Because we ourselves have so much of the old grave clothes still, still clinging to us, we are quick to see those same characteristics in others. We can dwell on these and point them out, and thus foster disunity and distrust, as well as leanness to our own souls. On the other hand, we can recognize in our brethren the divine image which has also been formed through grace in ourselves, 
we can rejoice in this, make it the subject of our comments, and thus foster unity, confidence, as well as fatness to our own souls. Along this line, we can also see the weight of those other statements concerning criticism, such as, Wherein thou judgest, another thou condemn thyself, for thou that judgest does the same things. And with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. How greatly indeed we need the new mind in Christ concerning our brethren. The curse of the fall has been to bring separation both from God and our neighbour. The centre of our consciousness has been occupied with our separate selves. We have lost that instinctive spiritual union which was meant to be the original status of man, union with God and union with our fellow man, thus making, as it were, one supreme self of which we are each members in place of a multitude of separate selves. This spiritual union is restored to us in Christ, in whom we are members of one body, members of one another, we in him, he in us, and thus we may say we in each other. As our eyes open to this, we slowly learn that when we damage a brother, we damage ourselves, and when we do good to a brother, we do good to ourselves. Thus Christ said, Love your neighbour as yourself. Even in dealing with the unsaved, in whom we cannot look for the image of Christ, there is an approach of love and trust which wins, when condemnation and castigation of sin often repels. The Lord Jesus was a magnet to sinners. Why? We learn the secret in the answer he gave to the Pharisees in Luke 15, when they criticized his consorting with them. He revealed by the parables that, that followed that his attitude to the sinner was to regard him as a prodigal son and a lost sheep. Prodigal, certainly, but also a son, lost, but also a sheep. Such words, quoted out of their context, could easily be misconstrued. But, of course, other passages make it clear beyond question that the sinner is lost eternally if he does not return to God. But from the point of view that the shepherd and saviour, seeking the wanderers, while not belittling that awful fact, he also loves to remember that the sinner is God's offspring, lives, uh, lives and, and has his being in him, in him. Acts chapter 17 and verse 28. Bears his image in a multitude of natural endowments, and above all, has that in him, the light that is in all men, of John uh, chapter 1 and verse 9, which might be described as the unceasing inward movings of the Holy Spirit in preparation for conviction and conversion, a, a hidden work of grace which, despite the, en the enmities and opposition of the fallen nature, engenders in all who are not absolute Christ rejectors a response to the message of God's love, a longing for man's lost birthright of purity and power, and a disgust of a life spent amongst the swine. All great soul winners know that it is this attitude of tenderness and confidence in man's readiness to hear and ability to respond which wins the day with the sinner. Thus, once again, as with saints, 
So with sinner, the, the golden key is faith. And that concludes the reading from the section How to Maintain Unity, Chapter 8, from Norman Grubb's book, Little Booklet, Touching the Invisible. This was published by CLC Publications, I think originally in 1941. And uh, I would encourage you to maybe get a hold of a copy. And uh, actually the preface in here, written by Norman, was in 1976. I'm going to read that for you now anyway. The preface or preface, depending on which side of the pond you're from. During our earlier years in the world evangel world evangel worldwide evangelism crusade, we were confronted, confronted with problems which greatly occupied our attention, and the ensuing chapters give an outline of the answer to them, which remains today as much the right answer as then. The first has been, is there an infallible secret of success in any piece of work undertaken under the guidance of God? Question mark. We began to ask that question at a time of almost hopeless internal chaos and external difficulties. The practical details of how the answer was found, its many varied applications and the results that followed are to be found in various other publications of the crusade. But the general evidence is seen in the fact that the mission, which has then had 35 workers in one field, with one home base has increased through the economic difficulties of those days and through war years until today, where there are two crusades, the World Evangelism Crusade and the Christian Literature Crusade. The WEC, with 950 workers in 29 fields and 10 sending bases, and the CLC, with 350 workers in 31 fields. All this attributable to the discovery and application of one scriptural secret of success which God has laid down for the guidance and use of his servants all through the pages of the Bible. I have published several other books in an endeavor to give a thorough examination and exposition of this fundamental dynamic of all Christian living. These include God Unlimited and the latest Who Am I? But the chapters of this present little book give glimpses of the light revealed. These may not be found to be easy reading, and certainly they need more thorough exposition. But we know by experience that thousands of Christians are hungry today for the teaching and light which go to the root of all problems of life and service, and we hope that these pages will at least open a window upon the hidden treasure. The second problem has been, is there an infallible method of maintaining a healthy spirit of fellowship in a Christian organization? Sad experience has driven home to us the fact that the zeal and faith of a body of Christians often outruns the manifestation of fervent love in its own ranks. To this also an answer was found and put to the test of experience. Failures there have been, but as the years have passed and general standard of unity, mutual trust and family fellowship attained only confirms us in the certainty and the solution discussed in a chapter of this book gives the one law for the maintenance of Christian unity. And that's the one I just read. The proof that the light of God shines in some measure through these pages will be that it shines into our hearts as we read and sends us out more fitted to experience in our own spheres of God's service, of service God's word to Joshua.
Then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Preface written by Norman Grubb, 1976. So this is a great little book, and I read this book in, I think, 2006, and I can see notes in here from 2007 as well. And it was, I think once I read the book, it was one of the books that, much after December 15, 2006, really brought me along in sort of grounding and settling what then at the, that time for me was the first time it was uh, November was it November yeah December 15 2006 is, w- is when God came as I said then but what I meant was God revealed his son in me as Paul says in Galatians um, uh, and that was uh, a couple of months after I'd met the folks in Louisville, Kentucky, in the backyard of the Buntings and the Warrens, and that tent meeting had been going on for 35 years, and Norman uh, would often share there, and other people would share as they came along in, in the knowledge and awareness of Christ living in them, Christ as of the hope of glory. And so, um, if you hear this, if you hear me waffling on, um, I'll include a link in this post to a copy of the book, Touch the Invisible. Or if you let me know, I'd be more than happy to buy and send you a copy for free. Anyway, that concludes my recording for this evening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, Look forward to connecting with you. Take care and God bless.